0: welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast. I'm Eric Olander. And as always, I'm joined by Kobus Staden of Witz University in Johannesburg, South Africa. Very good afternoon to you, Kobus. Good afternoon. Kobus, I am so excited tonight because we're going to be talking about a subject that you and I have been wanting to address for at least a year now which is to talk about how does the China-Africa relationship kind of fit into a broader context. And and specifically, we want to compare it to what the Chinese are doing, say, in South and Central America. So this is part of a series of shows that we've been doing over the past few weeks, comparing China and Africa to China and other parts of the world. We're focusing on the Americas. We're also going to take a look at what's happening here in Southeast Asia. Now, interestingly, a lot of people are not aware that China's engagement in South America and Central America is actually considerably larger than what it is in uh, Africa, Uh, almost by 30 or 40 percent. We're going to get some specific numbers on that, but yet we really don't hear much about it. Yeah, it's amazing.
1: You really get the feeling that China and Africa stirs the imagination in some kind of way. It, 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 It Draws you know kind of draws in people's issues in relation to China in relation to Africa and for some reason it just makes people excited to talk about while China's engagement in all of these other parts of the global South somehow doesn't draw a lot of attention and also doesn't make people as nervous as China and Africa
0: does, despite the fact that many of the issues are actually very similar. So here to help us kind of understand what the Chinese are doing in the Americas, we are so thrilled to have Associate Professor of International Relations at Tsinghua University, Matt Furchin. He was also a resident scholar at the Carnegie Tsinghua Center for Global Policy, where he runs the China and the Developing World Program. Matt, welcome to the show. Well, thanks a lot for having me. It's really, really fantastic to have you. I'd like to start actually with a quote uh, from a 2011 paper that you wrote entitled China-Latin America Relations, Long-Term Boon or Short-Term Boom. And you wrote this for the Chinese Journal of International Politics. It's a little bit long, so bear with me, but I think it will help set up our conversation nicely here. You write, Within Latin America and Africa, as well as for other interested observers around the world, perceptions of developing country relations with China span a wide range. At one end of the spectrum is optimism that China constitutes a new and alternative driver of trade and investment for developing countries. Such optimism is sometimes linked to the notion that China also serves an alternative model of economic development and international diplomacy." And then you go on to say, at the other end of the spectrum is skepticism and fear about China's rising economic, political intentions and influence. And what I found so interesting about that quote is that quote could have been written for the China-Africa relationship as much as it could have been written for the China-America's relationship. And I'd like you to expand on that a little bit to talk about how the two kind of compare to one another.
2: Yeah, well, that's a, a good starting point. The interesting thing... About that, on a number of levels, not only the, the comparison, it's just that that was back in 2011 when things were comparatively better in the sense that during the sort of high point of the commodity boom, at least the price for exports from commodity-rich countries in the Americas, but also other places in Africa, Australia, and elsewhere was, you know, was at its height. Um, but that really is, is one of the, the basics that, that I have a sense is, is one of the most important sort of similarities between um, Latin America, South America in particular, and, and certain places in Africa is the commodity connection. Um, and I actually think that's even more stark in the case of the Americas. Really, there's only a very few commodities from a very few number of countries in South America that, that sort of constitute the bulk of the exports. Um, from the region to China
0: walk us through what what that geographic map looks like in terms of exports those few countries
2: Okay, yeah, so really it, first of all, it's South America um, It's not Mexico. It's not Central America. It's South America and it's really four or five countries So the ones that's four or five countries and maybe four products that sort of stand out um, the countries are Brazil Argentina Chile Peru, and Venezuela, and the products are things like iron ore and copper, so mineral products, um, energy, oil, basically, especially from, from Venezuela and, and from Brazil, Ecuador, um, uh, and then some agricultural products, especially soy um, from the southern cone. So it sounds like a lot
1: of the exports are very similar, and also a lot of the, the larger issues in terms of China representing a different development model um are very similar so matt why do you think that that china latin america relations gets relatively f- much much less attention than china africa relations
2: that's a really good question i think that there is first of all uh, a prioritization from China itself, um, where Africa sort of fits the sweet spot for China's South-South diplomacy, its engagement, its attempt, both historically and currently, to be a leader of developing countries and sort of the South-South dialogue. And I think Africa fits that um, model more clearly um, than, than the Americas. Um, there's also more, more sort of controversy I think related to, to Africa um, in the sense that um, there's this feeling both from some in Europe and uh, the United States and maybe elsewhere that that China is sort of its engagement is sort of maybe undermining efforts um, to promote development in the region, but also maybe undermines efforts to promote democracy and, and better governance in, in the region. So there's there's that part of it as well um and i think in in some ways this the relationship with latin america is just it's just so simple again in in a way it's it really is this sort of um commodity based export relationship they also you know a huge amount of imports and overall trade volume has increased but but really the, the the sort of amount of controversy um in the americas in terms of china's engagement is pretty limited
0: it's interesting you say that because you know as an american you and i both americans the united states has always had a particular kind of claim on on the Americas. I mean, obviously, it was formalized in the the early 20th century by the Monroe Doctrine, which literally said this is our sphere of influence and we don't want the Europeans to come in. And that was, uh, you know, President Monroe never in his wildest imagination ever dreamed that China would be the country that would have $300 billion of trade with the Americas. Um, And so I guess what surprises me is that the, the sensitivities in Africa about neo-imperialism and neocolonialism colonialism um, that aren't present in the same way in the Americas, given the fact that both the Americas and Africa suffered from colonialism, and even in the post-colonial period, the United States was, you know, very interventionist.
2: Yeah, that's a it's a very interesting question. I think <clears throat> there are... This is something that's a little bit confusing for China too. I actually think from China, from many Chinese analysts and the government's point of view, they would like to see the sort of level of hype about China's involvement um, with the Americas be at a similar level um, as, as with Africa. And, and that would also mean a sort of sort of excitement and responsiveness on the part of, of many leaders from the Americas. Um, but it is an interesting question about why is it that there hasn't been more – are you guys still there?
0: Yes, I'm still there. We lost COBUS, but continue.
2: Oh, OK. Um, uh, it's a really interesting question about why there isn't more of a reaction from, say, the American government or, or from analysts. And I think one of the major reasons – so if we think about the Americas um, and you know send all the way from Mexico on down as the sort of – backyard, which the Chinese always refer to in a sort of disparaging way um, of, of Latin America to to the United States, um, I think that one of the reasons we don't see as much controversy is the United States government has not seen China's presence in the region as a threat. And that includes not really seeing it as a security threat. There have been a lot of studies and there have been sort of congressional hearings on it. But basically, it's a sort of big shrug. Um, There's some worry about arms sales to certain countries especially venezuela and other places Concern about the the proposed but now probably defunct nicaragua or uh, uh, canal in in Nicaragua Um, but basically um, There's really not a lot of major concern on the part of us security Analysts about china's presence in the region
0: Is that because the united states really has been accused of neglecting latin america as a whole for the past? You know, say ten years. I mean, Latin American policy has really never figured very prominently in the post Bin Laden era.
2: Yeah, and even more than that. And that's that's a really interesting question. Um, I think that the and when we see this changing. I think you're correct. I think in general, the United the the United States has seen when looked southward has not been overly concerned. And this has been a there's been this back and forth for, you know, a century at least of the United States either paying too much attention to the Caribbean, Central America and South America and sort of being intrusive and a bully or neglecting the region. And I would say the last 20 years or so has been more of the sort of a neglect form. And some people think that's good and others worry about it. But I think that's part of it, is that basically the United States has not been worried about the region. China's engagement has been primarily commercial. And so the, the sort of concern or anxiety on the part of many in the United States um, has been relatively diminished. That said, something that is quite interesting, um, and I think there have not been much written about it, is whether or not China's rising presence in the region is sort of prompting a response. And one way we could look at this is the is, at the very least, we know that President Obama um, has um, changed the United States policy on Cuba, um, and is sort of engaging with the region in a more active way. And we see this recently with Colombia and the peace process there. And some in China, and I think this is probably overblown, think that they did it. Like, that China's engagement with Latin America and South America and and uh, the region in general has sort of prompted the United States to come up with some of these new policies. That that may be true in some sense, but I think it's more complicated than that.
1: Um, you know, to take it in a slightly different direction, one of one of the really controversial issues in China-Africa relations is the the relatively high level of Chinese migration to Africa, um, with with some with people saying you know there might be as much as a million, even some people saying two million Chinese migrants living in Africa. How does that compare with Chinese migration to Latin and Latin and South America?
2: It's a great question. I think this is one of the key differences. I think aid is another one. We can go into some of the other things that really constitute a difference. But one of them is people. People flows from China um, to the region. Um, and uh, my sense, I think we can probably say this with quite a bit of certainty, is that there are just many, many more Chinese citizens um, who are living, doing work, uh, and otherwise active in Africa compared with with Latin America. That said, it's a really big question mark about how many Chinese nationals, citizens, uh, are living and working in the Americas Um, and and this becomes a I think a a potentially very relevant issue if we were to have some sort of a crisis maybe not on the same scale but something like what happened in in Libya and if there were a need for a rescue um, let's say it was a national uh, a natural disaster or potentially something political the only place that's you know you could imagine that I think would be Venezuela. But I've heard that very similarly to places in Africa, basically the, the embassies, Chinese embassies in the Americas really don't have a good handle on this. So I've, I've heard some numbers that are actually quite high of, of how many Chinese citizens may be in any given country, especially in a place like Venezuela. But mostly it's a big question mark.
0: Well, the, the migration issue may not be the same. One issue that does seem to have some parallels between Africa and the Americas is, is the labor issue, particularly in places like Peru, where the Chinese mining companies have come under enormous amount of criticism for their labor practices. And I think for a lot of people who follow labor issues in Africa, they'll find some comfort in knowing the fact that, well, they're not alone in critiquing China for very, very poor and substandard labor practices. Talk a little bit about that.
2: I think that's exactly right. and I think if you look at both labor and environmental issues, especially in extractive industries, um, you're going to see some very similar issues. The big difference, really, though, um, is that in general, very few, if any, countries in the Americas, this may be somewhat different in the Caribbean, but basically very few countries, with a couple of exceptions, like Venezuela maybe, in South America, actually even allow for foreign labor to be included in these kind of contracts. And it's actually been one of the big limitations on the sort of type and volume of foreign, Chinese foreign direct investment in the region. Uh, on a number of occasions, Chinese firms, um, and the government have tried to create very similar kinds of contractual arrangements um, as they have been able to do in some African countries, whereby labor would be included as part of the deal. And many countries um, in the Americas have just said no. And in some countries, it is constitutionally prohibited. Uh, for e- examples um, include Chile, um, and I believe Colombia. I've heard many instances of saying, well, we would love to have more Chinese investment, but they say they're going to um, you know, build labor into the contract, and they just say, no. Huh. So that is one big difference.
0: It's an interesting comparison, because that actually might serve as a role model for some African countries that have really been, you know, critical of the Chinese for bringing in labor. Kopus, let me ask you a question here, because you and I, before the show, were talking about kind of the differences between Africa and the rest of the developing world. And I pointed out the fact that South and Central America uh... Um, were as much a victim of colonialism as africa was you know many times by the spanish and other european powers uh... here in asia you know i'm in a i'm in vietnam where this is a former uh, french colony and the china itself was a victim of colonialism but yet the colonial issue remains far more sensitive today in Africa than it does, say, in the Americas. And you gave a very interesting reason why. And I I think it'd be interesting to kind of talk about what your perceptions, from an African point of view, is the difference between Africa and the Americas and how China, for example, fits into that and why the sensitivities aren't the same.
1: Well, you know, it it struck me that a a lot of countries, a lot of regions share this experience of of, of foreign powers coming in and essentially taking over the, the administration of their of their countries you know kind of um changing the language changing the the way that the, the system works installing a different kind of bureaucracy and so on so that's a shared experience across latin america africa um, southeast asia and so on what i think is different in the case of africa is that africa also experienced the trauma of slavery um and of so it's, it's literally of having entire populations. Basically, strip mined and having them kind of taken away. Um, and I think that that historical trauma is quite unique to Africa. And then, of course, you know, kind of in that, and, and the, the trauma is kind of carried over, especially in, into the Western hemisphere, um, you know, kind of and connects Africa with Cuba, with Brazil, and so on. But I think that experience puts Africa in a, in a unique position in relation to, to colonialism and, you know, kind of might. Ex- to explain why the issues of colonialism and neocolonialism colonialism is, you know, that why these issues refuse to die, essentially, in the discussion of of Africa's relationship with with even contemporary powers like China. Very interesting. Um, can, Matt we is, get,
0: can we get just go quickly? Can I get Matt's reaction to that? Just to kind of get Matt, can you bounce off of that? And do you agree? Do you disagree? I mean, obviously, the Americans, you know, white Americans. Uh, you know, enslaved and colonized Native Americans and also enslaved Chinese to build the California railroads. Do you agree or disagree with Cobus's take on that?
2: Well, I think it's a very interesting and I think probably, you know, very trenchant uh, analysis of it. I think it probably, you know, has a lot to do with it, the way that the sort of colonialism took place. Um, I've thought quite a bit about this. First of all, I think the, the Chinese side, and I'd say, you know, like official diplomats and others do not understand this, the way the, the sort of sensitivities and nature of a sort of anti-colonial sentiment and identity as it differs in Africa and Latin America. Um, I think they've gotten a generally positive response um, in in many ways to a, a general sort of expression of anti-imperialism um, in in their dealings with, with many leaders in Africa. This doesn't go very far, uh, is my sense, in in Latin America. And so that's prompted me to think about this, too. And I think one of the reasons, uh, in my mind at least, is that the colonial experience in Latin America is very distant. Um, You know, most countries in the region, um, with a few exceptions, like Brazil, uh, got their independence uh, around 1820. So that was a very long time ago now they went in a very different direction from the United States and and others um, but they have also eventually created their own uh, democratic institutions which they've you know had in place in a relatively steady way for you know 20 30 years now um, and and well before that in many other cases as well so I think there's just a there's a difference in timing. One of the things that I think is most interesting about this, though, is the way in which, I talked about this in the paper that you quoted earlier, Latin America has this very interesting intellectual tradition of dependency theory. So even though they shed this sort of anti-colonial um, sort of sentiment, they still had this very strong, trenchant critique of, of sort of economic dependency and the way in which commodity exports sort of disadvantaged countries that were reliant on those. I actually think that um, is sort of the more, what is it, I don't know, the lasting legacy of a kind of anti, I don't know, hegemonic view of the world. And what's interesting about that is that it could be easily, as easily applied to China today as it could to sort of the United States or Europe in previous eras. And how does that, how, how does the, the the narrative of China
1: representing a new um, development paradigm, how, um, you know, that, that does, that. Has played quite a kind of a a powerful role in Africa, Um, you know, kind of because it also opened. The, the 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 door to imagining a, a kind of a future in which africa isn't isn't dependent on the west but also do, doesn't have to think of the west as a kind of a portal that it needs to pass through in into modernity or into development that there's an alternative route to development um uh, you know if you follow the chinese example um is that a similar kind of narrative that happens in in, in latin america and does china play a similar kind of role like an, a non-west anti-west kind of role mm-hmm. in latin america
2: I I think to a certain extent that is true. In my experience, those who sort of push that line the furthest are sort of older, unreformed um, leftists in the region. Um, There was a there was an appeal uh, among some in the region back, I'd say, you know, in the 50s, 60s, 70s of um, Mao and the Chinese Revolution and its sort of alternative to a Soviet model of of socialism. Um, And the people who tend to look at China as having this sort of alternative development model in the region are often people who remember that China but we've gotten an equally, I don't know if it's large, but there are definitely people who are quite skeptical of that. And and uh, even at the height of the commodity boom, people in the region worried. And they, they were able, I think, to... Even if China itself as a development model and what it was doing domestically may have had some appeal for some, others were sort of this mixture again of optimism and anxiety when they looked at the commodity-based relationship, um, which again, if they took that to its logical conclusion would bring them back to dependency concerns of, of previous eras.
0: Let me ask you a final question here just about how well each other understand the other. So one of the criticisms of both Africans and Chinese uh, up until recently has been that many African governments really don't have a China policy and they don't have people who speak Mandarin, who understand China. That's now starting to change in some parts of the country, particularly in South Africa and some of the more developed South uh, African countries. But many countries still lack a sophisticated understanding of Beijing. And in turn, for a long time, a lot of Chinese diplomats um, really didn't understand Africa. You know, they were sent there for the first time. They had very minimal understanding of the continent and the country and the culture. That, too, is beginning to change now as China's engagement deepens. David Shambaugh, the noted China scholar out of Washington at George Washington University, he wrote in his last book, uh, he singled out Brazil, for example, and how unsophisticated Brazil was in its China policy. And I'm wondering to get your sense of someone who at the Carnegie Chinhua Center, who's met some of these diplomats and talked to some of the foreign policy officials. How well briefed are they on the particular issues in the Americas? Do they have the understanding of the different countries and cultures? And then in reverse, how well do you think the region understands China?
2: Yeah, it's it's also a great question. I think it's actually quite similar to what you just explained um, with the China-Africa relationship, where both sides... Um, lack the level of of knowledge and sophistication that they should have. And I would say it's actually more extreme. Um, Just sort of geographically, it's further away. Latin America didn't have the same sort of connections that some African countries did, even going back to the 1960s. Um, So it's a very, very new relationship for for both sides. There's a, a lot of misunderstanding. And the fact of the sort of extreme simplicity of at least the commercial relationship, where basically what China was doing was buying some of Latin America's commodities uh, and selling some goods in return. It was basic trade-based relationship. It wasn't super sophisticated. Um, And I think that lent itself to a, a relatively, you didn't really need a lot of deep knowledge. Um, so I think, and you know, I look a lot at China-Venezuela, I think China-Venezuela has sort of pushed this to an extreme where actually both sides failed to understand the other very well, and now they're both in a very difficult relationship with one another. Um, but I'd actually say the state of China-Africa sort of knowledge of each other, from my understanding, and this includes outside institutions and other researchers from all around the world looking at it, is actually levels beyond the, the the relationship and understanding in China, Latin America. There are some really good people on both sides looking at it, but in terms of numbers of institutions and depth sophistication of knowledge, it's still at a very beginning stage. I,
0: I mean, you think about it that uh, the Chinese now have a permanent mission to the African Union, which I don't think they have a permanent mission to the Organization of American States. Was, you know, So there doesn't seem to be the kind of multilateral engagement, uh, the military engagement, and you know, the cross-sectoral type of, of, of exchanges that are happening in Africa. Hey, Kobus, just before we leave, I'd like to get some impressions from you on what was the most surprising thing you heard today uh, from from Matt about the the, the China Latin America relationship that as a China Africa observer surprised you.
1: I think what surprised me is the the relative lack of of ideological anxieties and you know kind of back and forth in the relationship that that it is possible to maintain this this trade relationship you know kind of um, this kind of South South trade relationship that I think everyone is is basically a lot of people in the Southern Hemisphere is dreaming about. And that it's it's interesting that in in Africa that it, it brings up so much other issues, you know, so much anxiety, so much kind of uh, you know uncertainty, um, and you know it's it's just very interesting to see just to to see the different the, the different tenors of the two relationships.
0: Yeah, so Matt, just before we go, you know, commodity prices today are at record lows for the past ten or fifteen years now. Oil is at thirty dollars a barrel. You said that China's main engagement in in the Americas is in commodities and if that's the case I wonder if what we're seeing in the Americas is going to mirror what's happened in Africa where foreign direct investment now in Africa for the past say year-on-year is down between forty and eighty-five percent. Trade levels between China and Africa are down forty percent. Are you seeing a similar decline in trade and investment and engagement between China and the Americas as we're seeing in Africa and what do you see going forward if commodity prices remain this low?
2: Well I think that is the issue and for a few years now I've been saying that the China Latin America relationship that the honeymoon period is over and that was even sort of before the commodity boom and the dramatic drop in prices of a variety of things had had fallen. I think this is a this is a major major turning point in the relationship with China Latin America but with others uh, as well, and I think this includes Africa and some other commodity-rich countries in the developing world and elsewhere. So that is the issue of sort of what that means. I think um, for not only the economic relationship, but I think also the political and even a multilateral cooperation that we've seen. Um, I- interestingly, though, I think what we, we've seen a strong, we continued strong demand for the volume of a number of commodities coming from South America. It's just that China's getting them at a cheaper price. Now, Some you know, Chinese demand is also changing on the margin, but the volume has remained relatively strong for a number of of these commodities. And interestingly, a new report from the Inter-American Dialogue um, uh, has just come out on the number of, the amount of loans um, from last year, and it actually went up. It was the second highest since, I think, 2010, from China to Latin America. So, But I, but I think this is partly reflected by t- Chinese desperation in Venezuela and the sort of continuing um, financing of the failing Venezuelan government. They have no other way, real way out. But actually, financing has remained relatively strong, despite the downturn in the commodity trade. So I think we're going to continue to see um, a fairly strong commercial uh, relationship. It's just that it's going to, a lot of it's going to turn to the advantage of China.
0: You know, Cobus, it's absolutely fascinating to do these comparative kind of discussions. And I, I, I can't wait till we kind of continue to delve into more in Latin America, but also in Southeast Asia. Matt, it, it's, it's mind-blowing how interesting this is. Thank you so much for taking the time to join us for the show.
2: It was my pleasure. Thanks for having me.
0: Matt Furchin is an associate professor of international relations at Tsinghua University in Beijing, and he joins us from the Chinese capital. He's also a resident scholar at the Carnegie Tsinghua Center for Global Policy, where he runs the China and the Developing World program. Matt, one of the things we like to do at the end of every show, and I know you've been listening to the show for quite some time, is we want to kind of... Guide people to follow what you're reading and writing on social media. Now, I know you are there behind the Great Firewall, so it might not be so easy to engage in Western social media. But are there places where people can find your papers and some of the things that you're doing these days?
2: Yeah, so the main place to go would be my Carnegie um, site. So if you just do Matt Furchin Carnegie, you'll find most of my stuff. And hopefully I'll have something out in the not-too-distant future about... um, uh, Chinese economic statecraft, um, sort of how I see the China-Latin America, China-Africa relationship linking to these Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank One Belt, One Road initiatives.
0: Oh, fantastic. And uh, just for everybody looking on Google, that's F-E-R-C-H-E-N. Matt Furchin, thank you again for joining us. And Kobus, if people want to find you, uh, where can they find you?
1: Well, you find me on our Facebook page. It's facebook.com slash China Africa Project. And there we curate this 24 hour day steady supply of China African news items. Um, I'm also on Twitter at Stadnesque. That's S-T-A-D-N-E-S-Q-U-E. And you can find me on Twitter at
0: E-O-Lander, E-O-L-A-N-D-E-R. I'm tweeting the top China and Africa headlines almost every day. Also, we've got a newsletter that goes out every Monday with four or five of the top stories, and we put academic papers like those from Matt in the Carnegie China Center in there. We have headlines, we've got our podcast, we've got a quote of the week. It's really a great little newsletter, and uh, we're so thrilled that over a thousand people now are subscribing to it, so Thank you to all of our subscribers. Of course, if you want to follow this podcast, easiest way, iTunes.com slash China Africa podcast. And we have a brand new Android app, so you can listen on your Android mobile device, either for a tablet or a phone. Just go ahead to the Google Play Store, take a look for China Africa Project, and we'll come right up there. So we'll be back again very soon with another edition of the China in Africa podcast. Thank you so much for listening.